0: I submit to you this morning that the primary reason for the weakness of the modern evangelical church is that it does not understand the cross. So often, it takes the cross of Jesus Christ and reduces it down to a little three-minute blurb and then moves on to more profound things, deeper things. In Christianity but if you've ever heard me preach more than once or twice what do I always preach on the cross now why do I do that it's not because I don't study all the scriptures it's not because I don't read many books it's because there is only one thing that burns in my heart above everything else. Just one. I think I could spend 10 hours a day for the rest of my life doing nothing but studying, reflecting on, and preaching on the cross of Jesus. But you know, I'm in pretty good company here. The Apostle Paul writes... I have resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. You see, folks, there really isn't anything else worth knowing. At the cross, we see the power and love of God on full display. At the cross, we find the most profound hope that exists in the universe. At the cross we witness the defeat of everything that haunts us. Etc., etc., etc. You see, there's just there's no other place for us to go. There's nothing else worth knowing. So, let's go to the cross together this morning. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And today we come To Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen. Mark 15, verses 33 through 41. Verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely, this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is God's Word. So, where so many get it wrong, let's try to get the cross right this morning. Let's try to get it right. Mark shows us three important elements of Jesus' crucifixion that we must grasp. Number one in your outline today is the reality of the crucifixion. The reality of the crucifixion. Let's look at verses 40 through 41. Verse 40 Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Now, in first century Judea, women were seen as almost subhuman. Almost. Women were thought of as hysterical and emotionally unstable. They were seen as being intellectually and morally deficient. And therefore, untrustworthy. Untrustworthy. The testimony of a woman was not even admissible in a court of law in the first century. But would you like to know who the only witnesses were to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Women were the only ones. They were the only ones at all three events. We had Mary Magdalene, Jesus' mother, Salome, and a few other women. They were the only ones at all three events. The greatest events in the history of everything. Everything. Christianity is literally built upon those three events You see the death burial and resurrection of Christ If they didn't happen The entire thing is junk okay? If those three events did not take place you can take your Bible and you could throw it straight in the garbage The whole thing's worthless Okay, it is built upon those three events The whole thing's garbage without it, without those three events, you see. So, do you see what's so amazing about this? Do you see? God decided to let the fate of Christianity rest on the testimony of women. Which is pretty darn cool, I think. (laughs) I think it's pretty darn cool. Of course, you and I know good and well that women are of equal value and capability as men. But that wasn't at all the case in the first century. So, this shows us two things. Number one, God is explicitly condemning the sexist pig attitudes of the first century. He's explicitly condemning them. And number two, If you were men in the first century, making this story up about Jesus, okay? Just making it up, just inventing it out of thin air. You would never make women the eyewitnesses to these events. Never. Why? Because no one would believe you. No one would believe the story, you see? Consider this quote from Celsus one of the biggest 2nd century Roman opponents of Christianity. He writes this, quote, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. End quote. Mm. So, if the gospel writers wanted to substantiate their message, they would have listed Peter or John or some other prominent disciples as the first witnesses to these events. So why did they choose to include women as being the first witnesses? Because that's how it actually happened. You see... Women were the first witnesses to these spectacular events. And the gospel writers are committed to writing down the truth of how things took place. The centrality of women in the stories of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection suggests that the stories are historically authentic. And this is critically important. This is critically important for us. We must see that the crucifixion of Jesus is not a parable. It's not a symbol. It's not a motivational story. It's not one of Aesop's fables. No, the cross of Jesus Christ is an historical event. It actually took place in real time, at a real place in history. Even the atheist scholar Paula Frederickson admits, quote, the single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion, end quote. Okay, so the crucifixion of Jesus actually happened. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, Jesus himself tells us what it means from the cross. He tells us from the cross what it means. Point number two in your outline. The suffering of the crucifixion. The suffering of Jesus' crucifixion. Let's look at verses 33 and 34. Verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we hear from Jesus' lips is his own interpretation of his crucifixion. And what he gives us is a terrifying cry. In the darkness that's what he gives us this particular greek word that mark uses for cry literally means to scream to scream and so what we see here is the deep heart-wrenching agony of what jesus experiences on the cross you see up until this point he's been forsaken by the crowds He's been betrayed by an unjust court system. He's been forsaken by his closest friends. He's been beaten and his body ripped open by a whip. He's had a crown of thorns jammed into his skull. He's had his hands and feet nailed to a cross and all without a single word of protest or complaint from Jesus. Not one. Jesus doesn't say anything about any of it. He just takes it. He just takes the crown of thorns. He just takes the nails. He just takes the whip. But here, at this moment on the cross, when darkness falls on the land, Jesus screams in agony. Why? Why now? Well, notice what he screams. Does he scream, My hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my head, my head? No. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, earlier he had been forsaken by the crowds and by his friends. But here he is forsaken by his father. And this was infinitely more painful for Jesus than the nails. Or the thorns infinitely more jesus's cry in the darkness explains everything about what he's actually suffering here more than emotional pain or physical pain what jesus is experiencing is spiritual collapse it's an implosion on the inside Jesus is undone and unraveled in his spirit. This is complete inner darkness. In many ways, the darkness that comes over the land is a physical representation of what's happening inside of Jesus. At the time of day when the sun is at its highest and brightest, Total darkness envelops the land. This is not an eclipse. This is a supernatural event. You see, if you read in the Old Testament, whenever God's judgment arrives, whenever his wrath arrives, one of the first things to be taken away is the light. The first things to be taken away is the light. For example, in Exodus, there is the story of the ten plagues against Egypt. The final and ultimate plague is the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt. But the ninth and penultimate plague right before it is the deep darkness that comes upon the whole land. This is why the Bible rarely describes hell as fire. It's pretty rare it most commonly refers to hell as outer darkness that's the most common expression for hell hell is a place of forsakenness it's a place where there is no light it's a place where there is no warmth it's a place where there is no God And so, my friends, what Jesus is experiencing on the cross is hell. That is what he's experiencing. It is the total loss of the presence of God. Jesus did not redeem your sins because the Romans beat him up. He redeemed your sins because he took your hell for you and for me. And you and I really have no concept of what this would be like. No concept at all. You see, even the staunchest atheist today is walking around surrounded by the presence of God at all times. At all times. So, The only people to know the torment of the absence, the total absence of God are those in hell and Jesus Christ on the cross. Those are the only two that know what that is like. But of course, Jesus' hell was far worse than all of our hells put together. Far worse. Why do I say that? Because Jesus and the Father from eternity past have been in the most intimate and loving relationship imaginable. Okay? We can't imagine it, how intimate and close they are. Jesus is madly in love with his Father. Madly in love with him. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus can hardly go a minute without praying. Right? He's always leaving the crowds and leaving his disciples to go be alone with his father. Why? Because he's madly in love with him. He doesn't want to go a minute without him. So the people in hell have the presence of God removed from them, which is horrible because God is the source of all light and all warmth and all comfort. It's horrible. But those people have always hated the Father. They've always hated him. They've never wanted his presence in the first place. But imagine what the removal of the Father's presence did to Jesus imagine what the total forsakenness from the father did to Jesus this is forsakenness on an infinite level the nails didn't make Jesus utter a word but the removal of his father's presence made him scream to the top of his lungs Which, by the way, is incredibly hard to do while hanging on a cross. You see, the cross is designed to asphyxiate you. That's what it's designed to do. So, Jesus is in so much agony that he musters up all the air in his lungs in order to scream. But please know that this is not divine child abuse it's not that is what many skeptics and Muslims label this they'll label it divine child abuse on the cross this is not divine child abuse why do I say that I say that because scripture is clear that this has always been the plan this has always been the plan the Father and Jesus made this agreement an eternity ago. You see, God spoke of this day back in Amos, chapter 8, saying, In that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make that time like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. This has always been the plan of redemption. So, if this has always been the plan, what's the purpose of the plan? Why did the Father and the Son make this agreement in eternity ago? This brings us to our last point in your outline. The result of the crucifixion. The result of the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's look at verses 37 through 39. Verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What's going on here? When God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were in a place of sanctuary, a place where they experienced the presence of God all day, every day. They walked with Him in the cool of the day, they could see Him face to face. This is intimate communion and peace with God. There is warmth. And there is light. But when they rebel. And sin against God. They are banished from the garden. And never allowed to return. In fact in Genesis it says. That there was an angel with a flaming sword. Stationed at the entrance of the garden. To bar them from returning. Now. Many years later, a temple is constructed. The temple is designed as a replica of the Garden of Eden. That's its design. It was decorated with Edenic imagery. Lampstands that looked like trees were placed around the temple. Precious stones were put there because there were precious stones in the garden. They were flowers and fruit. Because there was great fruitfulness in the garden and in the innermost recesses of the temple was a room called the most holy place the most holy place in this particular room there were no lampstands no windows no skylights it's basically a dark cube with no illumination Why? Because the holy presence of God was its illumination. The Old Testament says that God is light. And in that room is where God's presence dwelled. And so, in his presence, in that room, you were surrounded by light. The light of God. But at the entrance of the room was an enormous curtain. It's enormous, it's the thickness of a man's hand. And it was embroidered with figures of angels on the outside, like the ones found in Ezekiel guarding God's throne, and like the one found in Genesis guarding the entrance of the Garden of Eden. This curtain was there to separate people from the presence of God. Only one person, the high priest, was ever allowed in that room. And he could only do so carrying a sacrificial animal. It's the only way he could go in. And what that curtain represented was the fact that because of sin, because of our rebellion against our Creator, there is a separation between man and... And God we can no longer walk with God in the cool of the day as Adam did and if anyone were to try try to approach the presence of God there would be an angel with a flaming sword to bring down God's wrath upon them but look what happens here in our text today At the very moment Jesus gives up his last breath, what happens to the curtain? The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Think about how incredible that is. Not from bottom to top. From top to bottom. As if two invisible hands grab a hold of the top of it and rip it from top to bottom do you see what Mark is saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ goes under the sword. The sword of God's judgment and wrath. And he becomes the ultimate sacrifice that lets us all in. Because Jesus went under the sword, you and I, are under grace. Do you see? Do you see what this means for us today? It means that through the blood of Jesus, full access to God is available to us again. It means that Jesus is our substitute. He is our substitute. Jesus was cast out of the presence of God so that you and I could be brought in He was forsaken by God so that you and I can be accepted by God. Darkness fell upon Jesus' soul so that you can I, you and I can walk forever in the light. In other words, Jesus goes to the grave so that He could bury death itself. He could bury sin itself. He could bury hell itself and bring you and me and many others, even the pagan centurion in our text today. He can bring us to new resurrection, abundant life. He took hell so that we could have life to the full. So, What is the result of the crucifixion of Jesus? The result is that nothing, absolutely nothing is separating you from God. Nothing. Not your sins, not your failures, not your shortcomings, nothing. Your sins died with Jesus. Don't you see? They're dead. They're gone. That's over now. Your sins are dead. I've heard so many Christians over the years tell me that God's mad at them for this or that. Oh, pastor, I really blew it this week. Ooh, I know God's mad at me for this or that or X, Y, and Z. No, he's not. No, he's not. Don't you see? The full anger and wrath of God has already been poured out on Jesus. That's over. There is no more wrath left for you. There was a cup of wrath for you and for me, but Jesus drank it down to the dregs. He drank every drop. So there's no more anger for you or for me. By the blood of the Lamb, you have free access to your Creator for all time. For all time. God ain't mad at you. God is pleased with you. Because you have, through faith, the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of His Son. He ain't mad. The modern church seems hell-bent on sewing the temple curtain back up. I mean, they're hell-bent on this. It seems like that's the the modern American church's job, is to get our sewing kits out and sew the curtain back up. When we pour guilt and shame and to-do lists onto everyone, but this church that you're sitting in right now is hell-bent on leaving that curtain torn. We are hell-bent on that. And we will declare to all who enter our doors, you are forever forgiven and free through the precious blood of the Lamb. You're free, you're free, you're free. And you're forgiven through the blood of the Lamb.